This is the Luke Thomas Show podcast. You can listen to the full show weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. Today on the Luke Thomas Show, we're going to react to what Robert Drysdale said to ESPN in defense of his cornering at UFC Vegas 3. Plus, I had a bit of a back and forth with somebody else in the MMA community. All is well, but it's worth reflecting on some of the lessons. Who gets to be an authority in MMA? What is credibility? And who gets to have an opinion? These are actually important ideas and conversations that need to happen, and we're going to have it here today on the show. The Luke Thomas Show airs weekdays at 1 p.m. East Coast time right here on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. And don't forget about the mailbag, Show at gmail.com. All right. Uh, it's so funny, man. Like, you know what was really interesting was we, you came off of the... Uh, we came off of the weekend. We had just some killer fights, but I had mentioned not a criticism exactly. I mean, the UFC is doing the best they can, but I had mentioned like there was not a lot of uh, you know when the fights were made, you looked at them and you thought, oh, these are good matchups, but you didn't think, oh man, these are ones that I've been waiting to see these two be put together. Doesn't this mean a whole lot? Doesn't this say a lot? And they can still carry pretty significant meaning, but you know they were more just like interesting permutations rather than like these long coveted bouts that needed to take place and sort of the most coveted among them would have been a Tony versus a uh, Khabib at this point but the only point I'm raising here is this is not to criticize UFC please don't misunderstand me rather that as good as those fights were and they were tremendous I'm being very clear about that it's the Tuesday after and a lot of the storylines that encompass them have already gone away and that's that's to be expected because they're just they're they're just really good fights without a grander narrative kind of interesting how it all leads that way now the one sort of controversy that endures here is about the opening bout on that entire card austin harbor ticket on max roshkoff max roshkoff by the way speaking to the i think it was the body lock outlet saying basically you can go read it for yourself but more or less that um you know he basically has uh, he and his coaches are fine and they support him and he supports them okay which is to sort of to be expected nothing particularly uh strange about that kind of a comment right but the one that i thought was kind of interesting was not max's it was robert drysdale who spoke to uh, espn's Ariel holwani now the reason why i think this is kind of interesting is because Obviously, this details with some of the Twitter back and forth I got into with Robin Black yesterday, which we'll get to a little bit later in the show. But there's a question of like, what is, why is there controversy here and what is the appropriate response? And like any controversy, there's going to be people on all sides of things here. Um, but the side that I had taken was I, when Robert Drysdale says, you know, I know more about fighting than anybody else. Uh, or certainly uh, than, than media critics. Fair enough. I, I don't know what I'm going to tell a guy who has been not just a black belt, but a super decorated black belt. And when it comes to cornering, to be clear, I'm not going to, like, in everything I said yesterday, I don't recall one time being like, you know what he should have said to Max in terms of trying to pump him up? Because I don't mind that when the fight first started, excuse me, when the when the break first started, uh, that he tried to pump him up. Remember, I thought my, my argument was after six or seven times of him pleading, okay, at that point, the conversation has shifted, right? Now you have to recognize where you're at. And then to me, the basic crux of the issue is there is a degree of safety protocol we could be and should be observing that we're not. It's not a question of what are the best practices as it relates to getting your fighter to do what you want. I don't know that I have anything to contribute there. 
I don't know these people. I've never done this. It's a separate question about what is the proper role of safety here in getting fighters who want to be out and saving them unnecessary damage. And it's a broader conversation. I'm not sure I have all of the uh, right answers, but my belief is that health advocacy is a key role that corners play. The reason I believe that is because people who have been cornering for decades in boxing tell me that it is. Regulators want to see more of it. And I've had conversations with elite coaches inside MMA who have been doing this for a long time, and they echo their boxing counterparts. To me, uh, it's a pretty sufficient degree of evidence. And then when you look at the case where you've got all these stoppages in boxing, and by the way, boxing still has problems with this, but you've got a lot more corner interventions in boxing than you do in MMA, it tells you that maybe something is missing here and why. We can have a debate about why, but to me... The role of health advocate is a secondary and important role that corners need to be playing. It's not a question about best practices as it relates to performance. It's a question of to what degree do we incorporate more safety protocol so that we can make this sport something that we can allow, right? I mean, if the whole reason why MMA is regulated and combat sports are regulated is so that this is something that can take place in an organized and monitored way. Well, that means safety protocols have to be put into place and they'll ever be ever evolving as well. Cornering is so difficult. You get 60 seconds for a title fight. You only get four of them. And for a three round fight, you only get two of them. It is so difficult that, you know, you have to give uh, competitive guidance. You have to give strategic advice. You have to give uh, with, the, with the cut man and swell, you know, Vaseline, uh, ice, whatever. And then you might have to pump your fighter up too. I mean, that's hard. And you might have to take into consideration safety protocols beyond that. That's very difficult. That's extremely difficult. And what I found out yesterday was there are no guidelines from any regulatory agency inside combat sports related to what are best practices in the corner as a function of health and safety. They don't exist. Seems like to me, something is missing. That is my claim. That is my argument. I lean on subject matter experts, and I did, of course, my own research here. Doesn't make me right, but that's my point. Okay. It is ever important that we hear from Robert Drysdale because, of course, he has a side of this story. So let's begin that process. In cut one, Robert Drysdale says part of what went into his calculations is that Max's health was not at risk. Let's, let's hear it. Yeah, I think that the one thing that got a little, I think the public perhaps took a little, um, you know, misconstrued is that Max's health was never at risk. You know, his safety was never at risk. Um, if Max had hurt himself, they're seriously broken a jaw. You know, if he had you know, lost his vision, I would have jumped over that fence and interrupted that fight before the judge could be on it. Like no one in that arena cares more about Max than I do. So, you know, I knew that he wasn't at risk. I knew that he was just, it was more than just fatigue. He was mentally frustrated. And I wanted to bring him back to life. I want to revive him. I want to convince him to get back in there. And I had 60 seconds to do it. Um, if you watch the video closely, I'm even like when he first says, call it, I'm almost like shocked. Like I'm silent for a second because I can't register what he's saying. Like I, I can't make the connection between the word call it and him quitting because like I can't even fathom the fact that he was doing that. So it threw me back a little bit and I had like very little time all on national television to recompose myself and like, what do I do? 
And my immediate reaction is what I feel was the correct one, was try to bring him back to life because I knew that he was going to regret the decision. It was going to be one of the gravest mistakes of his life. And he regrets it already, you know? So I knew that was going to happen. I, I know how fighters think. I know how they are. And I know that deep down, he didn't want to quit. Okay. I think there's a lot there that's got a lot of merit. First of all, you can tell Robert Drysdale is a smart guy. This is not a dumb person at all. This is a very bright person. Uh, fine. Going back to the corner, you could hear he's shocked. Understandable. He tried to pump his guy up. Again, I think the initial attempt to get the guy back in it is understandable. He's on national television. He has 60 seconds. Fair point. I, I totally get it. The only issue I would take with the audio here and the point he is making is he says he wasn't in danger. Well, relative to the, the damage he had taken in the first two rounds, you know, I, I, I think Drysdale's point is, is, is fine. He did not, Max, take a significant beating. I mean, he was getting tuned up a little bit. He was taking some really hard shots. He had visibly slowed. It was heading in the wrong direction. But to the point I made yesterday on the show, again, very different circumstance. If we're just talking pound for pound damage, Tony Ferguson took more damage in the fight with Justin Gaethje hitting into the fourth or the fifth, right? Again, very different situation. But if we're just talking absolute damage, who had more absolute damage? Tony Ferguson did. Right? And we still let that sort of continue, and there wasn't the same kind of outcry about it. The problem is not that. The problem is, and no one really knows the answer to this because you're all guessing, but if past is prologue, what ends up happening is if you send a fighter out, and you can look, how do you know this? Because I've been watching the sport for a long time. I've had conversations about this a long time, and you guys have seen this for a long time. I am not stating anything that is particularly crazy. If you send someone back out in a round and they have mentally surrendered, which it appears Max in that moment had, and I don't judge him for it, they're going to get badly hurt, right? They're going to get badly hurt. Now, some fighters are willing to get badly hurt. Anthony Smith will make that claim. Like, I'd rather get badly hurt and go out under these circumstances than vice versa. It's a complicated debate to have, but if you can save someone a beating when they are no longer interested in this, clearly no longer interested in this, my argument is you have a responsibility to listen to them, right? He didn't get badly hurt. Good. The question is, what would have happened if he had gone out there and what had gone on in round two not only continued, but continued to escalate? He would have been badly hurt, right? Or, you know, maybe choked out or something, but it would have gone poorly for him. And we saved a guy at 5-0, and oh, an extra round of beating from a guy who's got, you know, almost 20 fights. That's the argument. And you can tell, you can hear, listen to this audio, and you can tell Robert Drysdale's a bright guy. Remember I said yesterday, I was very clear about this. I don't think he's a bad guy. I don't think he's some kind of like a incompetent. Far from it. What I think is the problem is not a degree of competency as it relates to what they've been shown and what they've understood. My argument is about, have we put at the center of cornering enough of an emphasis on health advocacy? And that is a conversation that is broader than just fighter input. That is a conversation about every interested party there. It, it, that is the reality of all of combat sports. All of combat sports requires us to say, what are we willing to tolerate as a group, as a society, as a government? What are we, what are we willing to tolerate? Turns out we're not willing to tolerate 15 rounds of boxing after a guy dies on national television. We are no longer willing to tolerate that. That's not merely a conversation about boxers. It's a conversation about all interested parties and stakeholders. And if you can make an argument 
that this is better in the long run for the fight game, and I believe that one can be made, then you should advocate on its behalf. And that is what I am doing. Nevertheless, it is worth hearing out Robert Drysdale because he is a smart guy and he has a right to defend himself. So let us hear it. Now, he is, uh, um, I don't know if complicit is the word, but he certainly has reflected on the fact that, you know, this guy had like a week's notice, Max Roshkoff, to get involved you know, they have a high belief in him, but that may have been a little bit too much. Cut to. But I thought Max won the first round. But speaking of the fight itself, I think, first off, five days notice coming out of a quarantine. Uh, he had a bit of an injury, you know, like a while ago, and it had it fully recovered. But this is the UFC. When the UFC knocks on your door and says, do you want to fight? You take it. This is the moment he'd been dreaming about his whole life. And, you know, in hindsight, is always twenty twenty, And we can go like it was, you know, um, it, it, you know, we, we could have waited longer. But when... You know, when we got the news, Max was excited and he was in and he made weight, but he had a five day camp. And I think that that led, and I think this is where we erred the most. This was the biggest mistake throughout the whole process is we were perhaps overconfident about Max's ability. Seems quite reasonable to me. You know, what, what the right answer is on whether or not if the, if the UFC knocks, do you say yes? I do not know what the right answer is. What I can tell you is what Austin Hubbard said. Uh, so what the UFC does is they send out, so, uh, okay, so if uh, you're watching a fight night card, right, after every fight, the UFC sends media a uh, result with, the ju- with a picture of the judge's scorecards, and then they give you a quote that from the winning fighter. Do you guys know what Austin Hubbard said? Let me read it to you. Quote, I saw him shaking his head, and I heard the ref saying, it's over, and I was like, what, Really? I've never experienced that. I'm not complaining. I got the finish, so I'll take it. Once I was popping up right away uh, off of those takedowns, and he couldn't control me at all, especially when it surprised me a little bit on those rolls where he got my legs. But I defended them, and I got out pretty quick, and I got back up, and I think it scared him. I think he realized he was in over his head a little bit. And I think also that he knew he had nothing for me on the feet, and I had a lot for him. I think he realized he's in over his head. He's a very talented person, a lot of good attributes, but he's really green in his career, still 5-0. and oh. There's a lot to learn. I think someone told me he once uh, fought an opponent over, excuse me, I think someone told me he fought only one opponent who was over 500. I do not know if this is true, by the way. This is the next level. I fought a lot of people that were really good before I got here into the UFC. I won multiple regional titles before I got here to the UFC, and I'm really thankful about that. I got into the UFC at 10-2, and two, which seems kind of long. It was longer at the time than I wanted, but it gave me that experience that I need to be here now, and I'm super thankful for that, and I'm looking forward to the future. When the UFC knocks as a coach or as a friend or as a cornerman, I do not know what the right answer is, but I can tell you if you can get more experience on the regional scene, if you can get a title there, if you can be in five-round fights there, if you can get some tough guys along the way, that will be much better for you by the time you get to the UFC. You know, so what is the right answer when they come calling? I don't know. But is there a real benefit to joining the UFC a little bit later in your developmental process? Don't take it from me. Take it from Austin Hubbard. Um, why were they overconfident? Well, Drysdale talks about what a talent max is. Let's hear it. Cut three. I have seen, I'm not going to mention names, but I've seen top five, top ten UFC contenders in the 155 and the 170 division with small gloves on, sparring rounds, get taken down by Max three times and tapped within a one-minute round. I mean, a, a five-minute round. He takes them down and taps them repeatedly. And we see them do this in the gym over and over and over. He goes and when he fights, he does the same thing. So perhaps the, the mistake was thinking it's a bigger stage, he's going to be nervous. I don't think we underestimated his opponent. I don't think that's the case. But I think Max was so eager 
to prove himself. He was so excited about being there. He had been dreaming about this moment for so long. He went out there, balls to the wall, round one. He's trying to do the Boston crowd round one, the pro wrestling move. Right? He does it in practice, but it's not something you do in the first round when your opponent is fresh. Fair enough. Again, I, there is, uh, this is not Drysdale is some kind of criminal. Far from it. It's just a question of how did we get to a point where a guy is begging to get out and a corner is trying to beg him to get back in and what do we do about it? All right. All right. Uh, he would have tried to convince him to get back out there as long as they gave him. So this is an interesting part. Remember, my argument is at the first six or seven times he wants out, you listen to him. But Drysdale does not agree. Let's hear cut four. I think Max got a little carried away. And then that led to him gassing out. Once again, he didn't have a full on camp. And once he gassed, he broke mentally. And him breaking mentally is, you know, what I was upset about because these things, that's not a physical health issue. That is a matter of will. And that's what I was trying to fix within those 60 seconds. And I did my best. And if I had 90 seconds to do it, I would have done it. If I had nine minutes to do it, I would have insisted for nine minutes that he get back in there because I know that deep down he wants to fight. Okay. I mean, I'm not sure what to say about that. Um, that's the part where I just disagree. You know, I just feel like on some level when a guy wants out, whether you want them to be out, there's a level of acknowledgement as a corner that you have to have for that. But that's an opinion, and I, I don't know what else to add there. Uh, I'm going to skip cut five because um, I don't think it's all that relevant. Okay, what about the commission investigating everything? Cut six. Max was having an emotional moment there. He was not injured. This is not about, if this were about safety, right, I would have been the first one to want to stop that, that fight. If this were about health, and I think that there's, there's been a buildup, a momentum of like coaches making bad calls in the corner, and like people are trying to like attach this to that, but it doesn't apply in this case. This was not a matter of safety. And if, if it were, I think the commission would be correct in discipline, but it's not. This is a matter of me motivating. Well, he's right to diagnose that there's been some bad cornering. And I don't think that this is on par with some of the other ones that I have seen, but it raises similar concerns is what I would say. Now, this is one where I really disagree with him. He talks about the particular time between Teddy Atlas and Michael Moore. And Teddy Atlas has a famous moment where he's in Moore's face telling him he's going to regret it if he doesn't do something. Let's hear what Drysdale has to say about it. Cut seven. I had a friend of mine who sent me a video of um, Teddy Atlas cornering Michael Moore years ago in boxing. And he's yelling at him. And he's yelling at him. And the reason why, and then Michael Moore goes and wins the title, the world title, right? And then he's like, no, Teddy Atlas is a genius. And I was thinking to myself today, it's like, had I, had I given that speech, that pep talk to Max between rounds, and Max gotten up and like, like pounded his chest, went out there and knocked his opponent out, I would have been a genius. I would have been a great coach. But there's a thin line in fighting between being a scumbag and being a great coach. I would agree that it's hard, but here is the difference. And anyone who's listening, do yourself a favor. You can get on YouTube. Go find the video with Teddy Atlas and Michael Moore. I want you to notice something. In that video, Michael Moore is not asking to get out. He does not ask once. He does not ask twice or three or four or five or six or seven or eight or nine times. He asks to get out of that fight zero times. He never does it. Secondly, 
How do I know what I'm about to say is a relevant concern? Because Big John McCarthy has talked about this ad nauseum uh, as part of what referees look for, which is what is the body language of Max Roshkopf as he goes to his corner and sits in the stool between the second and third rounds? He is looking down the entire time. Again, go and look at the posture of Michael Moore. He is making, he is burning a hole in Teddy Atlas's face with how hard he is looking at him. He looks away once to spit in a bucket. That is it. It is not the same. This is what I am talking about. Dude, Drysdale had a really, really impossible task. He had a very, very hard task. Who could sit here and look at what Drysdale had to deal with and say that's easy? It is insanely difficult what he was up against. About this, there can be no argument. And I'm not arguing that. It's hard, man. It is hard what he did and what he was up against and what he had to do. But the Atlas and Moore situation does not support his argument. It supports the opposite. Michael Moore was not asking repeatedly to get out of that fight. He was very much still in it. And Drysdale is right, as every other coach is. Sometimes that corner is going to need somebody to pump them up. And it worked. And you can see other examples of Teddy Atlas getting in there and uh, with Timothy Bradley. We're firemen. We live in the fire, right? Go and look at their body posture. Go and look at the Moore fight uh, those rounds prior to see if he was getting whooped. They're very different. And Michael Moore, as you mentioned, this is a championship level fighter at this point. This is not a guy five you know, days notice with five fights. There's just, there's so much about these situations. They are not the same. They are not the same. And that is my point. I'm not saying the job is easy. What I'm saying is even guys as smart and as talented and as sharp as Robert Drysdale, who know more about combat, who, who will forget more about combat sports training and techniques and the lifestyle, then uh, they'll forget more than I'll ever know. That does not mean that uh, cornering an MMA at scale doesn't have a problem. It does. If you can look at the more Atlas situation and think that that is analogous to this one, I would humbly submit to you something is off. And I don't think you need to be a genius to tell that. It seems evident to me. The problem that I think is that MMA cornering is still a little bit in need of updating. And by that, I mean, I am not in a position to tell Robert Drysdale what the best thing is to say or what technique things to offer. I don't know. I mean, I'm so far removed from that conversation. I have no idea what to say. Wouldn't, if they asked me for an input, I would tell them, don't ask me. I don't know. But what I think has happened over the years is the guys who trained, they would just corner each other. A generation retires and then they start cornering the new ones. That generation retires and they start cornering the new ones. And along the way, there has just been this hand-me-down policy of cornering is going to be NASCAR pit crewing. I do not see a sufficient amount of humanity. And that's not only me. That is a judgment that is informed by other high-level coaches Chief among them, not particularly, I don't know what his view is on this particular case, but you know, Trevor Whitman, Duke Rufus, many others. I had long conversations with Barry Hunter, boxing trainer, that are telling me that this is a thing that is missing and has to be there. 
It has to be there. That's a role you have to fill. And I don't think as the generations have passed, there has been this consideration. Just because they do it doesn't make it like the default best way to do it. Especially when there's no formal training around this. There's no formal training. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. How can you look at Atlas and more and think that that is analogous here? I honestly do not know. I legitimately, legitimately do not know. They are so different as to make the point for me. We got one last cut. Let's play it here very, very quickly, and then we'll get out of here. Um, he stands by himself as a, and his decisions as a coach. Cut eight. And that's how this game is, man. If you hit the, if you hit the mark, you're great. If you miss, you're a scumbag. Max didn't come back. It wasn't the great comeback that I wanted it to be. So I come across as a scumbag, right? But if Max had won that fight after, I would have been the greatest coach on earth. You know, and I think that's what people, I, it's, 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 it's the nature of the business. I understand that. But I don't think I did anything wrong. Like I did the coach's job. I think I'm proud of that moment, in fact. I think that it's, I did the right thing. And I'd expect my coach to do the exact same thing for me as they have in the past. Pick me back up. Get your butt back in there. You can still fight. You're tired. You're frustrated. You're not hurt. There's a difference. Yeah. Again, his assessment of how badly Max was hurt, I take no issue with. Him trying to give his guy a pep talk, certainly none of us should be taking issue with that. But realistically, what are you up against and what material change are you able to affect when a guy is begging you to get out? To me, that is sacred. I think to a lot of people it's sacred, and to me it's not obeyed enough. We avoided the catastrophic situation here. It didn't happen. But to me, if you believe that when a guy says they want out nine times, you're, you, you should keep telling them that they want in and that nothing bad will happen, all that bad will happen if you send them back out there, maybe nothing bad happened this time. I worry about the next. This week on World of Basketball, Kelly Olynyk and Kevin Pangos, two former Gonzaga stars, joined our show, and Kelly spoke about his love of playing for the Canadian national team. You know, it's an amazing feeling. It's something that I take a lot of pride in. Um, you know, playing for your country, representing your country, and uh, you know, Canada's done a, you know a lot for me. So has the United States. You know, giving you opportunities to to do a lot of things in your life. Um, you know, giving you the opportunity to live a great life. And so it's for me, it's kind of a way to give back to my country. New episodes of World of Basketball are available every Thursday on the Sirius XM app, Pandora, and Apple Podcasts. Okay, this is not going to be contentious, so please do not worry about it. In fact, um, he, he has texted me. I haven't had a chance to respond because I've been on the air, but uh, he took to Twitter and uh, apologized for some of the uh, things he had said yesterday. And Robin, if you're listening, it's fine. I even wrote it on uh, Twitter. It's great. He, I think Robin's a great guy. You know, sometimes we all get a little bit carried away with, uh, I think social media makes us meaner. Not just me too, by the way. Uh, and I could always be, you always got to reflect on these episodes and think about what your role is. Even if someone else might be doing some apologizing is there things you could have done better. Yeah, of course, man, there's always ways you can present your ideas to make them more palatable and friendly. And that's, that's a constant battle that I have. So I'll recognize that as well. But if Robin's listening, Robin, you're a great guy. Don't worry about it. We're cool. I appreciate it. I'll return your text when the show's over. We're all good. Okay. So. With that in mind, though, there was there is probably still a bit of a, dif a disagreement that we have, and here is something that I see in MMA all the time. Now, again, Robin's apologized, so it's cool. But 
a lot of times we have disagreements in MMA, which is fine, but we don't actually end up discussing the merits of the disagreement. What we end up doing is either getting into positions where we're assassinating each other's character or some kind of side debate that is irrelevant to the central concern, what is being disputed. I had made my points yesterday, as most of you know, about the situation with Max Roshkoff and Robert Drysdale, and I had argued pretty clearly, I do not believe that Drysdale is, you know, he's not a scumbag, he's a smart guy, he's a hugely decorated Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu competitor, he is an, you know, he's an undefeated MMA fighter, I am sure he is a gifted coach and trainer. Uh, I do believe he erred in the corner as it relates to Max Roshkoff, which we went over in detail. And my basic point about that is um, someone needs to explain why there is, and not that boxing gets it all right, but you need to explain to me why there is a gap between the uh, willingness of corners in boxing to protect their fighter when the fight is not going their way in MMA. Um, why is there this gap? And there's a lot of reasons for that. One of which is that the sports are different. Um, I think there's different levels of risk assessment between the two sports. It's not merely a function of safety protocol, but I also think that safety protocol is one of them. And as you guys know, I have been speaking for, uh, you know, basically the entirety of my career, but in recent years to esteemed coaches, both in MMA and boxing about this particular issue. And then I had spoken to some regulators over the weekend and they're alarmed as well. And so there might be some commissions, we'll see how long it takes, but there might be some commissions developing some best practices. Remember, you don't need a license to be a coach, and you can still be a great coach. Um, you do need a license to be a cornerman. And I think being a cornerman is an insanely difficult job. You have to be strategic in your advice. You have to be quick. You have to help heal injuries, quite literally, I mean, the cut man assists, but still you're part of that. You have to cool your fighter down. You have to get them ready for a competitive another round. I mean, it's an insanely difficult job, but if there's one part that to me that is missing in MMA, it is that the role of health advocate is not taken as seriously by it should, even by elite MMA corners. And what informs that judgment is not merely my own observation after years. It is in conversations with other fighters. It's in conversations with other coaches in MMA. It's conversations I've had, um, lengthy ones at time with uh, boxing trainers and coaches and, and with regulators in the combat sports space as well. I am, I am relying upon upon all of these different factors to make a judgment about it. And so my argument was, and I probably could have presented it in a somewhat more hospitable way, that I don't have anything to tell Robert Drysdale as it relates to specific advice. You'll note that I didn't say, oh, he should have said this differently to get Max in the game. I, I have no idea what he's supposed to tell Max. I mean, that's so far beyond my level of competency. I, I, I couldn't imagine what the right answer would be. My argument was, if a fighter is telling you in the, for the duration of 60 seconds without wavering that they want out in a fight that was starting to look bad, didn't get too, too bad, but was getting bad, um, that, that should be respected. And that it's part of a larger trend in MMA of corners viewing their responsibilities as being a NASCAR pit crew. Let's give you a change of tires. Let's clean the glass, whatever you need fill you up with a, a new uh, tank of gas and send you back out there rather than making the adjustment from pit crew to then health advocate. That is a view that is not merely born because I cooked it up in my head. It is a view that, uh, first of all, many other uh, trainers and coaches have in MMA. And I know regulators are looking for it as well because if you just sort of notice the nature of it, 
that is not a comment on best practices as it relates to the competitive part of cornering. It's a question of health and safety, which I don't think you need to be a fighter to contribute to. In MMA, combat sports generally, we are trying to make an assessment here about what we can allow as a society, as a community, if you're in the commission, as a government, right? If people were dying every weekend fighting on national television, we would have to amend the rules on some level. It would not be palatable. And where you draw these lines, these are, of course, topics of debate, and they're difficult to get to. But to me, I want to be very clear about this. That is not a conversation that you can leave strictly to the risk assessment of fighters. If fighters had the final say on safety protocol in combat sports, where they got to determine what the rules are, you would be looking at very different sports. You would probably have, given what their risk assessment is, fights to the death on some level, or fights that resulted in death by virtue of their risk assessment. You would have much greater damage being meted out. Of course, their input and their level of expertise you must listen to them. They are as critical a component in this conversation as anybody else's. But they are not the sole arbiters of health and safety. They cannot be. We cannot leave that to them. Because by virtue of their occupation, they are going to have a different level of risk assessment than a lot of other people. And it cannot just be something that is palatable to them it has to be palatable to the government entity regulating them and to the broader society, including sponsors, fans, media, and other stakeholders. And that's a complicated, messy debate on a number of levels, but we do it all the time. If fighters had their way after, uh, they would, if fighters had their way, there would probably still be 15 rounds in boxing despite people dying on national television. There may or may not be weight classes. You might have men fighting women. I mean, I'm not here to say that these fighters are reckless and unthinking, but they are so tough. They are so committed. I mean, do they fight for a living? They are going to have a different level of risk assessment that, has, that is going to be unpalatable in terms of a, a thing you can do repeatedly over time. Because that is what we are trying to do here. We are trying to make a sport with something that can be palatable and repeatable over time. And to do that, you've got to have the right safety protocol. Okay? That is a conversation that includes fighters, but is not defaulted to them. When I make a claim that I think MMA corners get health advocacy wrong, I'm not saying that because I know I could do their job. I cannot do their job. I am not saying that because we could tag, they could tag me in and I can go and corner somebody. Dude, I would never even dream of cornering somebody, particularly at the elite level. I mean, you just got, I mean, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't dare suggest that I have that. But all of us have a role to play in asking, are we doing this safely enough? Are we doing this in such a way that we are giving the fighters the best chance at long-term viability, and security? Are we doing this in a way that is repeatable over time with enough measures in place that we can be confident we're not doing unnecessary long-term damage? 
and I'm not going to hear and present this to you to be some very simple debate. It is exceedingly complicated in all the different ways in which that debate can be manifested, whether it is on anti-doping, whether it is on, you know, punches to the back of the head, 12 to six elbows, whether or not a corner should throw a towel. I mean, all of these conversations, they are difficult and sometimes contradictory, right? Oh, you can punch to the jaw, but you can't punch to the back of the head. I mean, if you really care about long-term damage, you're not law fighting anyway. I do not present this to you to be a simple problem to solve. But what I am saying is, while we must listen to fighters every time they have a stake involved and they got the most skin in the game of anybody, quite literally, you cannot always default to them, especially when it relates to not the practices of competition, but the exercise of vigilance in health and safety. That is not a debate that they alone get to decide, nor is it a debate that we alone, whether it's media, fans, or regulators, uh, should be the only ones talking about this absent their particular considerations. It is a collective. And so given my role, and given the homework that I believe that I have done, and the research that I have painstakingly under, uh, undertaken at times, uh, I, I believe that, uh, I, 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 I strongly believe in what I am arguing. Because it is not merely me, it is other uh, high-level experts suggesting the exact same thing. Now, let me make one more claim here, if I may, about what is, what is kind of happening here. One of the central disputes that Robin and I were having, and again, we're fine, but one of the central disputes we were having was I was asking him to watch the video I had made where I had laid out my case, and he had no, at the time, I don't, I don't know if he's watched it since, but uh, he had no particular claim about it. And I was saying, like, if there's something wrong about what I'm saying, by all means, please tell me. But um, I, don't, I don't think, again, at the time he, he had done that, he had made a, a different claim, which was that because I've never cornered, I am, um, I, don't know if he, I don't know if you, I don't know if he was, well, partly he didn't quite articulate exactly what he wanted to say, I think. So I'm trying to read between the lines here. What I think he was trying to say was, if you've never cornered, this is not a conversation um, that you can contribute to. If you've never fought, you shouldn't be analyzing fighters. And on that level, I got to say, I really disagree. First, as it relates to the cornering, true, if you've never cornered, um, <laughs> you know, there's going to be limited circumstances where you're going to be able to say something unless you have some other kind of knowledge here, which is possible to accrue over time, I suppose, in some other ways. But fair to the point, um, that's a difficult conversation. But again, recall what I said. I'm not really weighing in on what needs to be done in terms of icing or end swell or what you have to say to get your guy going or what strategic adjustments you need to make between rounds and how you need to do it. I don't really feel like I have a role for them. I mean, that's, that, that, that is not really my focus. My focus is on the broader conversation to which we are all not merely allowed to contribute, but frankly should be contributing to, which is, are we doing enough in health and safety to protect these guys? And on that level, I believe I have, and everyone else does as well, a role to play. As it relates to technique, fight, uh, technique commentary, let me just, and again, I don't know if exactly this is what Robin had said uh, or what he was, his issue was. I, I don't know exactly, so I, I got to be clear about that. He may not, this may not actually be anything that he uh, particularly cared about, but th there is a broader conversation to have here as well, which is um, who is allowed to have an opinion in MMA and who gets to be an authority? 
And I don't think it's actually a bad conversation to have. My answer would be the following. Who gets to have an opinion in MMA? Everybody. Media, fans, fighters, managers, promoters, all of us do. Regulators, all of us do. Smart ones, dumb ones, new ones, old ones. In terms of who can have an opinion, the answer is all of us. Now, who gets to be an authority? That to me is a bit of a broader and more difficult conversation to have, but it's worth thinking about something. One refrain that you commonly hear inside MMA is that uh, if you've never fought, you can never comment on fighters or uh, f- technique or strategy. And I would really submit to you that is a not the correct way to look at this. And the reason why is this is something known as credentialism, this over-reliance on what credentials you might have uh, as a way to uh, sort of uh, just that. It's an over-reliance on the value of credentials. Now, are you, am I saying there is no value in credentials? I mean, I'm saying the exact opposite, right? If you've got a black belt in jiu-jitsu or you're like Robert Drysdale, where you're like a crazy good black belt, that is a clear level of authority. And why do credentials matter? Like what, in society more, more generally, why do credentials matter? The answer is people need to know who they can trust. <laughs> it's very obvious. They need to know that what you're saying can be reasonably relied upon to either be true or at least somewhat informed. And credentials are a short way of getting there. Who's allowed to make comments uh, in deep detail about our COVID strategy? I don't know. Probably people who've been studying public health at a high level for a really long time, right? Something like that. Who's allowed to have an opinion? Everybody. Okay? And credentials are a shorthand way of getting there. So in all cases, you, you hear me do this all the time. I defer to fighters. Frankly, I beg them to tell me things. Um, because I don't have any of those traditional credentials that you would look to as some kind of sign of authority. So I don't mind that folks question it. If you must know my background, I've got over a decade training in gyms. That's striking, that's wrestling, that's jujitsu. Um, I, I don't have any uh, a co- competitive accomplishments to brag about, but I look at that time and no one's going to take those 10 years from me because they were hard. They were really, really hard. I look at those 10 years as um, fun and research and a way to inform myself. Because here is one of the problems with credentialism. First, it's a way to basically cut off debate. If the only people who can have a conversation are the ones that have these very specific credentials, that is often just a way to silence fair, by the way, criticism, number one. Number two, it's not a guarantee of quality. Credentials are a shorthand for authority, but not in every case. It is not because you have a credential that every time you say something, it is therefore true. An argument is either true because it is true, not because who says it. Because I say something does not make it true, does not make it false. Its relationship to the real world is what makes it true. Credentials are a shorthand way for the people who don't know anything or you know, have various degrees of understanding to maybe more rely on that than other things, but it's not a guarantee of quality. Fighters themselves disagree. Co- coaches themselves disagree uh, on all manner of things, and sometimes they get it wrong. And other fighters 
Call out other fighters. This is the other problem with credentials. You can say you're a fighter, but then someone who's like, well, you didn't fight in the UFC. And then the next person will say, yeah, but you didn't hold a belt in the UFC. And it goes on and on. I've seen fighters do it to other fighters. So like, even if you did fight, this debate is endless and there's no way to win. It's just credentialism as a way to silence criticism that a lot of people don't like. On top of that, it's not a guarantee of quality. And I think, you know, it also sort of, listen, there are levels to expertise, and I don't mean to say that I'm an expert because I'm not. I always tell you I'm not an expert. But that doesn't mean you can't be literate on these issues. And this is one of the most important problems I have seen in my 16 or more years as a media guy in this sport. People think you either know nothing or you know everything. And rarely is either case true. There are certain levels of occupational achievement and information building um, that lead to a degree of expertise. For example, Faraz Ahabi is an expert on MMA. I think all of us would basically agree with that. I do not even pretend to have the knowledge that he has, right? But I've got 10 years in the gym, guys. I'm not telling you I'm Billy Badass. In fact, I sucked so much. Here's what I discovered about myself. I was so not good that I had to ask coaches, whether it was a leg lock seminar I went to, whether it was a wrestling class, whether we were practicing tie clinches. I was so not good at it that I had to have coaches explain to me in great detail the intricacies of the position and what was being achieved and why, because it did not come natural to me. And I saw athletes that just had this body intelligence that it would come natural to. I was never one of those guys, y'all. I had to ask for help over and over and over again. But what it gave me was an appreciation, not only only a base level of understanding of the techniques and strategies involved, but an appreciation for the minutia. If you can't be an expert, be literate. Be a high-information fan journalist, regulator, whatever you can be. Do I think that I am an expert? No. Do I think that I am literate and that I can make within the boundaries of the knowledge that I have accumulated reasonably compelling arguments time to time? Yes, I do. And if you notice that when I am an analyst for my show, either on this one or uh, dissected that I do with Showtime, notice the very way in which I lay out the case for what I am making. First, I give you a disclaimer. Uh, please don't believe that everything I'm saying here are the only findings or the most complete findings or the best findings. I encourage you to hear what other analysts have to say each and every time. Every time I do that video, I say that to you. That's not a disclaimer to get me out of criticism. That is a real plea. Do you think I can break down the jujitsu techniques in the same way that the Gracie brothers can? Really? No. After I make that disclaimer, I make a series of claims. Now, I stand by the claims, but after I make the claims, I then present evidence from the visual side of the equation to support the claims. I tell you what I believe, and then I make an argument on its behalf. That is how I go about this. How many times has a coach reached out to me to tell me I got it wrong? Never. It has never happened. How many times has a UFC champion or a coach or just a fighter reached out to say that they really liked it or they had some other sort of praiseworthy thing to say about it? They found it interesting or whatever. 
virtually every episode, Max Holloway has gone on the record numerous times. His coaches told me they joke about bringing me in as a scout. UFC champions have told me they appreciate it. Rank and file as well. Coaches all the time. Not because I am serving them and telling them something they don't know. Maybe they just like it when I say nice things about them. Because that's what Dissected and what I do on the show is all about. If somebody wins, I would like to show you why they're so great. I would like to show you, based on my literacy about the topic, why I think they're interesting and why it deserves to be noticed. This is achievable. If I never went to Spain, but I spent 20 years talking to Spaniards, learning the language, studying its history, getting historical context, watching every documentary possible, talking to Spanish experts, would that be a substitute for going to Spain? No. Would I have some literacy about Spain that might be worth listening to? If you're a smart person, probably. Folks, if experience is the key, how do you ever go into the past? We can't experience it. We have to merely rely upon historical judgment. So I'm not here to tell you that experience is not that big a deal. It's massive. And I'm here to tell you that I'm missing it. But just because you're missing it does not mean you can't contribute to a conversation. The audience for my breakdowns, I don't think is fighters. I think they like watching me say nice things about them. My audience is people who don't know a whole lot, who just want to learn a little bit. Novices. That's my audience. And on that level, I believe I probably have a degree of literacy that I'm able to share. That is the central argument here. A lot of people want to exclude people from conversations. And not everybody can contribute on the same level. You must have a sense of your own limits and you must do your homework. Folks, for 15 years, I have been sticking a microphone in experts' faces, begging them to tell me every piece of information about their insight that they could, whether that's about the business of MMA, the regulatory side, or techniques and strategy. And in particular, it's been happening a lot on that uh, side for me in terms of asking about technique and strategy. I have been, as a, as a, as a life mission, I have been putting microphones in people who know more than me and their faces for 15 years. I have been studying by myself supplementary texts, videos, and whatnot. I have gone to dozens of technique seminars. I have been training for 10 years. On some level, if I am making claims to you and giving you a disclaimer and that I am presenting visual evidence to you, and you have seen publicly Demetrius Johnson, publicly Israel Adesanya, publicly Louis Smolka, publicly Eric Nixick, publicly um, uh, Max Holloway, all say that there is value to this. I believe I have a right to at least make a claim. Doesn't make me infallible either. I'm going to be wrong on occasion too. So who gets to have an opinion in MMA? Everyone. Who gets to be an authority in MMA? The people who have done enough of the work over time to consistently put together reliable, truth-centered content. My breakdowns are never going to be as good 
as Faraz Hobbies or BJJ Scout or Jack Slack or um, take your pick. Uh, the Weasel's great too. And the, I mean, there's a million guys on YouTube, by the way, whose bona fides, I don't know if any of them have trained. I have no idea. I don't know what their background is. Probably some, but I don't know. But I, I believe in the value of my content and I try to lay it out for you in such a way that evidences experience on some level, literacy on the subject matter and value to a particular form of the audience. I stand by my work. I stand by my right to contribute and I stand by, um, I stand by its quality. I stand by its quality. And, And I, and I don't think that this conversation needs to be had all the time. But, you know, Robin was saying, you know, training the martial arts. I, I, I have for a long time, man, for a long time. You could study them. Bro, trust me, I have been. If I haven't been doing that, I've not been living life. It's all I've done. So it's not wrong to ask who gets to contribute to a conversation. But it is wrong to silence voices who don't have um, the traditional route to authority or credibility that is strictly conferred upon you by credentials. There are other forms beyond that, and they are rare and they're hard to get. And believe me, I had to, again, I didn't start doing breakdowns until a couple of years ago because I didn't feel comfortable. And the only reason I did it, this true story, and I'll end here, the only reason I did it was because um, I would look commentators and I wasn't learning anything new. I, they weren't saying anything I couldn't spot. And so I was like, that's weird. And when did that start happening? And so I began to sort of look at things and then I would notice things that they missed when I would go back over it. Not that in totality, I know more. It's harder to call a fight live than it is to go backwards over it. It's easy to go over it backwards. It's much harder to get in real time. But I thought there might be a value there to contribute to audiences who may not know much. And I believe that the proof is in the pudding. I believe that you can look at my work and, and it's truthful there. You can ask Justin Gaethje too, by the way. He had some praiseworthy things to say about some of his breakdowns that I did. Um, I've never had a fighter come to me and tell me that there was a problem, right? I've had only the opposite. And it's because I have put in serious work and it's because I know my limits. I don't talk about stuff. I don't know when they start getting into leg lock territory, I check out, right? I don't know. I I just, I mean, I I went to a Gary Tonin seminar one time. I don't know enough about it to really, I don't know anything about rubber guard. I, I keep my mouth shut about it. I don't know. Um, but that's, that's, a, that's who gets to contribute in MMA. And I believe I've earned that right. Thanks for listening. Catch the Luke Thomas Show live and in its entirety weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. On Twitter, follow at LThomasNews and the channel at MMA on Sirius XM.